Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new Friday series with James Jordan as he walks through the book of Romans. Before we get into this episode, we do want to remind you to download the Theopolis app. You can find that on iOS and Android. And there we have a ton of video and audio content, as well as a schedule of upcoming events. And we'll be adding more and more content each week. This week, we added all of the audio from the 2022 Theopolitan Ministry Conference here in Birmingham, as well as Peter Lightheart's 2018 sermons in the book of Revelation. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Romans chapter 1. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the scriptures and thank you for their instruction to us. And as we look at the book of Romans, which has been so important in the history of the church and is, at least to me, rather intimidating, I ask that your spirit would be with us. We hope to just read through this book and see the broad sweep of what it has to say and guide our thoughts tonight and guide us throughout the week as we consider these things. We ask your blessing now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What I hope to do this evening is survey with you Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, possibly the whole chapter. We'll see how time goes. And so I want you to have your Bibles open to Romans because basically we're going to read this together, read and comment. As I said last night to those who were here, Romans usually takes anywhere from a half a year to five years for preachers to work their way through. And we don't have that. And so what we want to do is see the basic argument of the book. And to do that, we'll be reading along. So I'm going to read the first paragraph of Romans. You listen, and then we'll look at it. Paul, a bondservant or slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and who was appointed the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also the call of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved in Rome of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a typical Pauline sentence. One sentence that goes on forever and you get lost in the middle of it. So we need to look at it. He starts off and he says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. A slave of Christ. The word Christ is the word Messiah and it means the anointed one. The name Jesus is the name Joshua or Yeshua in Hebrew and it means the Savior or Deliverer. So when you read a statement like Christ Jesus, you need to read it, the anointed Savior, the appointed Deliverer. Paul, a slave of the appointed Deliverer of humanity. Now, what does it mean to be a slave? In the Bible, there are several degrees of slavery. If you are a Gentile, a pagan, and some bad guys come through your town and kill all the people and capture a bunch of you as slaves and put you in a caravan and start taking you around and selling you to different places, then, like Joseph, you can wind up being bought into slavery by a Hebrew, in which case you're a slave until you earn your freedom. Now, if you are a Hebrew 
and you get in debt or some disaster comes upon you and you have to sell yourself into slavery in order to pay your debts, you're only in slavery until the Sabbath year comes. That might be six months, that might be six years, but it's never going to be more than six years. Then you'll go free because debts are canceled in the seventh year. Therefore, the debts that you owed that got you into slavery in the first place are canceled. That's another kind of slavery. The slave who is bought from paganism and who's brought in and circumcised and has to earn his way into Israel, it's not in a real great position. A person who has committed theft and is sold into slavery to pay restitution is actually being punished by that. A person who goes into debt and goes into slavery to pay his debts and maybe to learn to work better, now he's got a master who's going to make him get up every day at the same time and go to work and be productive and teach him new habits. So maybe he won't get into debt next time. That's not the best position to be in. But there's another kind of slavery as well. If you are working for another man and you decide that you really want to be part of his household and you really like this guy and you like his family and you'd like your family to be attached to his forever, then you can go to the judges and the elders of the gates and you can declare publicly, I love this man. I love this master. I want to be part of his household forever. I want to be joined to his family. And in that case, you are adopted into his family. And you become what is called a house-born or home-born slave. Because you go through a ritual. The man takes you out to the doorpost of his tent. And he takes an awl, which is a pin. And he puts your ear right up here against the doorpost. And he sticks this pin through here so that your blood comes out on the doorpost. And that is like Passover. And it is a symbol of a new birth. And from that time on, you are born at the door of the house. The door of the house is like the door of the body through which the baby comes. And you are now born at the door of the house. And you are a home-born servant. Abraham had home-born servants, such as Eliezer of Damascus. And the law in Exodus chapter 21 and in Deuteronomy chapter 15 give the ways in which a person becomes a home-born servant. Now, this business of poking a hole in the ear and putting blood on the doorpost is the image of being born anew into that house. It's also an image of adoption into the house so that you become a son of the house. But it also is called the circumcision of the ear because it means your ear is opened up. Your ear is opened up to hear the words of your new master. Now, the alternative to having your ear circumcised is to have it chopped off, which is what happened to the slave of the high priest in the gospel. It says, Malchus, the servant or slave of the high priest, Peter chopped his ear off. And that's in all four gospels, so that this theme is important. If you don't open up your ear through circumcision, it's going to be cut off. That was the message to Israel from Jesus. If you don't open up your ears to hear me, I'm going to come in A.D. 70 and chop your ears off. When the high priest's servant's ear was chopped off, Jesus put it back. But that was just for 40 years. You can get it circumcised in the next 40 years. We're going to cut it off altogether. That's what that meant. Now, when Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, that's the idea of slavery. It's not just a slave. It's a son, an adopted son. Okay? Abraham had a natural son, Ishmael, and another natural son, Isaac. But he also had adopted sons like Eliezer of Damascus, adopted home-born servants who would inherit if he didn't have any literal sons, physical sons. We are sons and daughters of God, 
That's because we've been adopted into the household of God as home-born slaves. And our ears have been opened up to hear the master's voice. That's all implied here. That's the background for this term, a slave of the appointed deliverer. It's not just that Paul is a slave and he's saying, well, you know, Jesus is Lord, I'm just a slave. But far more than that, he's calling attention to being adopted into the household and having his ear open to hear what Jesus has to say. Now, since he is somebody who hears what Jesus has to say and is an adopted son slave, he is also an apostle. An apostle is an ambassador, somebody that's sent out. So Paul is an ambassador who is sent forth by Jesus Christ, the appointed deliverer, to carry his word. Now, again, think back to Abraham. Abraham has a slave. His name is Eliezer of Damascus. He is an adopted slave by the ritual of the doorpost. So he is an adopted son. Was he an apostle? Did Abraham ever send Eliezer of Damascus out on a very important mission? Yeah, he sent him out to get a bride for Isaac, about the most important thing he could entrust him with. And so this home-born servant, this slave, is sent forth as an apostle and given money and told to go out and get a wife for Isaac. And he gets Rebecca and he brings her back and she becomes Isaac's wife. Now, that's what Paul is called to do. He's a slave, but he's sent out as an apostle. And what's he doing? He's gathering together the bride of Jesus Christ to bring her back to marry Jesus. That's in the background here. Way in the background, but in the background. That's what it means to be an apostle, to be a slave sent forth by the master to do what? Well, we know from the New Testament to gather together the bride and make her ready for Jesus. So that's what Paul is doing here, and that's why the tension is called to this, and that's what Romans is about. Romans is about helping that bride grow up and become a fit Rebecca for Isaac. It says that he's set apart for the gospel of God. What is the gospel? The gospel is not that God saves sinners. The gospel is not justification by faith alone. People knew that God saved sinners all during the Old Testament. And God was saving people by faith alone all through the Old Testament. That's not new. The term euangelion means good news. What is new? What is the new thing that these guys are preaching? The idea that God saves people by faith is old news. It's true, but it's not new news. The new news is the enthronement of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords. The news is that now a second Adam, a human being, is allowed to go into heaven and sit at God's right hand as his co-ruler, as his vice-ruler. Because of Adam's sin, Adam never grew up. He just stayed a baby and then got warped and perverted and died, which is what happens to all of us, unless we're saved. But Jesus grew up and became fully mature and ascended to God's right hand and sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling the world. And that's a change. For 4,000 years, the world was ruled by angels because people had blown it. So God kicked Adam and Eve out and he gave the sword to angels and told them to be in charge. But now, Jesus goes up into heaven. You can read about this in the book of Revelation. And all the angels cast their crowns down to him. And he takes charge. Now that's news. 
That's the new news. And if you read the book of Acts and you read the early chapters where the Gospels are going forth with the news, the good news, what do they talk about? They talk about the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus. That's what they talk about. The new Adam has finished the work and become king. And in union with him, we are now adults. In the Old Testament, everybody was a little kid. Abraham was a little kid. At the age of 180, he was a little kid. At the age of 967, Methuselah was a little kid. David was a little kid. Paul says in Galatians that throughout the entire Old Covenant, we were under tutors and governors because we were little kids and we needed angels to run our lives for us. And so it was the angel of the Lord and other angels who mediated the Old Covenant. Because we weren't officially adults. Now, as a matter of fact, of course, some of those guys were older than we will ever be <laughs> and wiser than we will ever be. But officially, they were children. But Paul says now Jesus Christ has become officially mature. He has been taken officially into heaven and so have we. And we're no longer under tutors and governors. We're no longer under the ceremonial law. We're no longer under angels. Angels don't boss us around and angels don't tell us what to do. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Corinthians that we will judge the angels. You know the proof that the book of Revelation was written before A.D. 70? The simple proof is angels are the ones passing judgment in Revelation. Therefore, Revelation is about the end of the old creation. It can't possibly be about the end of the new creation because we will be the judges at the end of the new creation. You don't need any other argument than that. The fact that angels are the mediators and the angels are the judges in the book of Revelation proves that the book of Revelation is dealing with the end of the first creation. Now, the good news is that the first creation has been superseded by the new creation, that there is a resurrection, that the Holy Spirit has been sent down out of heaven to everybody, that all of God's people are prophets. And the reason for all this is that Jesus is up in heaven sitting on a throne. Now a human being, an Adam, has ascended to the place that Adam was supposed to ascend to. That's a historical fact, and that's the gospel. Somebody says, what is the gospel? The gospel is not you can be saved. That's part of it, of course. But the main part of the gospel is Jesus is king. And he's defeated Satan, and that's why you can be saved. So it says, let's read this again. Now, we will not go this slowly through every verse or we'll be here at camp for a long time. But we do have to lay out the foundations. Paul, a slave, an adopted slave of Jesus Christ, an important slave, a son slave, who was sent out as an apostle to gather up the bride and set apart for the good news that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and that everything is going to have to change now. History is going to have to change. The world's been tooling along about the same way for 4,000 years, but no more. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Well, this was something that was promised back then, but now it's finally come. Concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and appointed son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. Now, your Bible may translate that differently, but what I gave you was actually what is stated. Concerning his son... The gospel concerns God's Son, and this points to His eternal Sonship, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, who is forever the Son of God, before the world was made even. But the Son was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and He was appointed 
the empowered Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That's literally what it says. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was appointed the empowered Son of God according to the spirit of holiness, according to the resurrection of the dead. Now, your Bible, unless it's a very recent one, will not have those words in the right order. It's important for you to see. These verses are not saying Jesus was born of the seed of David according to his human nature, and he was the Son of God according to his divine nature. That is not what it says. That's not in view here. What it says is, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and the word flesh in Paul means the old creation, the Adamic creation. The Adamic creation, the old creation is fleshy, and that's okay. But the new creation is in the Spirit, and that's better. Jesus was born of the seed of David according to the old creation, but now He has been appointed by His ascension and enthronement. He has been appointed the empowered Son of God. The empowered Son of God. The Son of God in power. Not appointed with power, but appointed the Son of God in power, the empowered Son of God. What does this mean? What's this contrast here? Well, the flesh is the old creation. The Spirit is the new creation. What's the flesh? Well, flesh is dirt. You people are all made of dirt. Even the little girls are made of dirt. Even the babies are made of dirt. You are all just living clods of dirt. You want to know where the Holy Land is? This is it. This is holy land. Okay? Because Adam was made of dust. It says God took dust, not clay, but dust, and he breathed on it. When Adam was made, he was real light and airy. It was just dust that God breathed on and became this kind of ghost-like man that then got solid. Maybe that's how it worked. That's the flesh. And God breathed life into it, and that's the first creation. But God never intended for that to be the end of the story. God intended for Adam and Eve to mature to the point where the Holy Spirit would come upon them in a new way, and they would receive resurrection bodies which are transfigured and are beyond the flesh. And we don't know exactly what they're made of, but our resurrection bodies are in the sphere of the Spirit. That's history. And the good news is, it's finally happened. Jesus was born in the flesh. He came as a normal human being. He was made of dirt, like us. He was born of a woman. And now, He has been resurrected and transfigured into the resurrection body, and He has ascended to heaven where He is the empowered Son of God. That's good news. A couple of things to notice here. It does not say, verse 3, he was born of the seed of Adam. Nor does it say he was born of the seed of Abraham. It says he was born of the seed of David because the focus is on his kingship. He was born of the seed of Abraham and David and Zerubbabel and lots of others. There's a whole genealogy there. But the focus is on his kingship. Even in his Adamic human nature, before his transfiguration and resurrection, he was already born to be king. But now, he is enthroned as the Son of God. Now, the phrase Son of God is a title for the Messianic King in the Old Testament. 
David is called the son of God. Psalm 2, Psalm 89. Solomon has said that Solomon will be the son of God. The title son of God sometimes refers to Jesus' eternal sonship. But sometimes, and as it does here, it refers to the fact that he is a king. All the kings in the ancient world were considered sons of God. Have you ever heard of the king of Syria whose name was Ben-Hadad? How many of you have heard of Ben-Hadad? You read the Bible and you read about Ben-Hadad. All those Syrian kings were called Ben-Hadad. Well, Ben-Hadad means son of Hadad, and Hadad was the god of the Syrians. So their god was Hadad, and their kings were called the son of Hadad. Well, similarly in the Bible, the kings of Israel and Judah were called the sons of God because they were God's vicegerent, God's viceroy on the earth. And here in this context, when it says Jesus is appointed the empowered son of God, that's what it's referring to. He's now become the king. He's ascended the throne, but it's a lot bigger than David ever did because Jesus is the empowered son of God and David was never really empowered. And Jesus has the spirit which David only had a little bit of. Jesus is empowered according to the spirit of holiness, and that's because there's a resurrection from the dead. Now, David became the son of God, but it wasn't through a resurrection from the dead, and he wasn't really empowered, and he really didn't have the fullness of the spirit. It was just pointing forward to something. But now Jesus has. This is the good news. The good news is Christ is king. The good news is not the four spiritual laws. They're true, but they're not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is king. He's got the spirit. He's in charge. Things are going to change now. That's good news. It's good news for oppressed people. It's good news for women who are being beat up by their husbands. It's good news for the untouchables in every society in the world. The people who are deformed may have to live outside the tribe and they're untouchable. It's good news for them. It's good news for rich people who are bored. It's good news for poor people who are starving. It's good news for people who are oppressed by evil rulers who are going to be thrown down now that Jesus is king. It's good news. The world's going to be turned upside down. That's the good news. Because Jesus came into the old world in the flesh as David, and then he ascended in the Spirit to become King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Therefore, the world is going to change. The resurrection is going to be applied everywhere. Now, he ends verse 4 by saying that this person is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, the Savior. Christ, the Anointed One. Lord, who is the Master. Okay? The appointed Savior is our Master. He's in charge. That's the good news. Now, Paul says, in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. The Gentile mission, the gospel going to the Gentiles, is a result of Jesus' resurrection in the Spirit and his enthronement. Before that time, the gospel, well, there was no gospel, you see, but taking the full obedience of faith really went to the Jews. And the Gentiles could believe, but they didn't have all the benefits that the Jews had. And Paul will discuss the contrast that God-fearing Gentiles didn't have all the benefits that converted Jews had. But now it goes to everybody. And it's the obedience of faith. What that means is faithful obedience. That faithful obedience might go among all the Gentiles. Faithful obedience, a right relationship of trust to God that results in obedience. We have to trust God. 
And what's happened is God has done things that make it possible for us to trust Him. We're supposed to trust Him all along. But what God has done now means that there's no excuse for us not to trust Him. And so the trust in God is taken to all the Gentiles for His name's sake, that is, to glorify Jesus. And then he says, you people are included in this in verse 6, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. And then he says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was called as an apostle. He's Eliezer of Damascus. He's the servant who sent out to get Rebekah and bring her back to Isaac, the son. Now, the members of the church in Rome are saints. Basically, that means they're Rebekah. They're the ones that Paul is getting ready to bring back to Isaac. But there's a little bit more than that. What is a saint? You know what a saint is? A hockey player. I mean, uh, saints. What are saints? What does it mean to be a saint? It means to be holier than other Christians and be canonized. No, it doesn't mean that. A saint is somebody who is separated and set apart. No, it doesn't really mean that. A saint is somebody who has access to the sanctuary. Saint and sanctuary are the same root in English. And the equivalent words in Greek and Hebrew are the same. What does that mean? Well, you see, once Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there were these two cherubim with flaming swords. And if Adam and Eve tried to get back in, they'd give them a hot foot and then they'd back off and not try to get back in. Adam and Eve were excluded from the sanctuary and they couldn't get back in. Nobody could get into the throne room of God without becoming toast. And so when they set up the tabernacle, here's the tabernacle and here's the holy place and here's the most holy place. Nobody but a consecrated priest was allowed to go into the holy place. And they had seven days of consecrations to get them ready to be in there. And if they got a blemish on their hand or any problem, they were excluded. They had to be perfect to get in there. But nobody... Not even the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. The high priest could only go in there once a year. And the Jews were so afraid that God would kill him that they tied a rope around his foot so they could drag his body out in case God killed him while he was in there. Now, right after the tabernacle was set up, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, went waltzing up to the throne of God with strange fire. And what did God do? He told the cherubim, the cherubim on the two sides of the ark, sent out their flaming sword, and those boys were crispy critters. That was the end of them. You don't mess with God. Nobody had access to the sanctuary. The priest could come in a little bit, but if you were a layman in Israel, an ordinary person, you could go to the altar and bring a sacrifice. But could you put the animal on the altar? No, you could not touch the altar. The Levites were stationed around the altar with spears to kill anybody who tried to touch the altar and to kill anybody who tried to get into the holy place. I'm not making this up. The book of Numbers describes it. Levites were stationed around as guards to kill anybody. So you could sacrifice your animal. You could kill it and cut it up, but the priest had to put it on the altar. You couldn't even do that if you were unclean. If you made love the night before, you couldn't do it. Because if you're married, the act of marriage makes you unclean until the next day sundown. Nothing wrong with it. If you had a baby, you were unclean for 40 days if it was a boy and 80 days if it was a girl, which just goes to show. 
The reason it was 40 days for the boy is because the boy was circumcised and that took away a lot of the uncleanness. But you couldn't go. You weren't allowed to set foot inside the sanctuary area. If you had a white spot on your arm that might turn out to be leprosy, and that's not a good translation, it wasn't really leprosy, you couldn't go in. So you had to be ceremonially clean. Then you could go into the courtyard and get kind of near the altar but not touch it. But you had to be a priest to go in the holy place and nobody could go into the most holy place. What happens in the New Testament? All those curtains are torn down and we have access to the holiest of all through Jesus Christ. We are saints because we now have access to the sanctuary. We can go to God's very throne room because Jesus is up there right next to Jesus sitting on the throne with Him and we're in union with Him. So that's what it is to be a saint. That means history has changed. See, in the whole New Testament, it's not primarily about how God saves us as individuals because that's really revealed in the Old Testament. God saves us as individuals by appointing a blood sacrifice for us. And Jesus comes and He's the blood sacrifice. And that fulfills the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament. And in a sense, everybody knew that. We can see that and that's fine. And if that's all the New Testament was about, that could be said in a couple of sentences and that'd be all. But what's really new is this change in history. Now we have access to God without having to be at all this distance from Him. That means that we have His ear. Our prayers are heard more readily than prayers in the Old Testament. And God will listen to us. So, what does this first paragraph say? It says that the enthronement of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the new Adam, as a man in heaven, the enthronement of Jesus Christ means resurrection and transfiguration for the whole world. And it means that we are saints and we have God's ear. That is the good news that Paul is concerned about here in Romans. So let's look at the next paragraph. Paul starts off having described this change in history and how Jesus is now ruling and how we're now saints. He says in verses 8 to 15, To start with, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of His Son, is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far in order that I might obtain some fruit amongst you also, even as amongst the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So what's going on here? Paul says in verse 8 that he prays for them. He says, first of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ through the Savior who is anointed, the Savior who is the Messiah for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. So he's praying for them. He wants them to know that right off the bat. This is what the gospel implies. We're saints. We can go to God's house anytime now and pray. And he says their faith is proclaimed through the whole world. People down in Australia knew about these Romans. Well, probably not, but whatever whole world means here is what it means in the New Testament. When Jesus says the gospel is going to be preached in the whole world and then the destruction of Jerusalem will happen, this is what it means. 
And already at this point, the entire world, the world of that day, knew not only the gospel, but they'd heard about these Roman Christians. The word was traveling fast. Now, Paul goes on to say, For God whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how I make mention of you in my prayers. So he's praying for them still, making requests that perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. So he wants to come and be with them, and that's what his prayer is about. Well, we get to that in a minute. I want to comment on this term, serve. Whom I serve in my spirit. This word serve is the word that's used for worship for liturgical obedience in the New Testament. What Paul is saying here is that we serve through the Holy Spirit in all of life, not by extending acts of ceremonial consecration to everything, but because everything we touch is consecrated by being in contact with us. Now, let me just explain this to you. The Pharisees had decided that all of life needed to be under God. And all of life should be consecrated. And God should be king of everything. Now, the way they did that was to extend the few ritual laws of the Old Testament to everything. So they had rituals to consecrate drinking cups and plates and gardens and everything because they thought they have to have a ritual to consecrate this and consecrate that and make everything holy, make everything under God. That is the same thing that the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches do. The Orthodox have got rituals for everything. You build a house and the priest will come out and he'll put incense through everything and sprinkle holy water on it. And down where we are, the Anglicans and the Catholics, they go out and bless the ships and dump holy water on the ships. All of this stuff is what is implied by this word serve. That is how the Jews served things. They were always doing little ritual consecrations of things. Well, Paul says by implication here that that is not the Christian way. The fact is, you and I are already saints. So guess what? Everything we touch is consecrated by the fact that we touch it. Everything we look at is consecrated by the fact that we look at it. And if you set up some type of ritual, some medium like holy water or incense between you and the object, you're denying that the Spirit has come. That's the effect of it. And you wind up denying this good news. If we ritually consecrate things in the world, we are denying the coming of the Holy Spirit. We are denying the gospel and denying the coming of the new age. Now, you know, our friends in these churches don't mean to do that. But we have to think clearly and say, why don't we do these things? Why don't we sprinkle holy water on a new car so that it's blessed? Why don't you bless things in your house? Why don't we do that? Because... The world is consecrated by the Holy Spirit. And everything we do is consecrated. So we don't just consecrate our new car and our new house, but every time you pick a flower, you're consecrating that flower. Every time you put your hands on the piano and play it, you consecrate that piano. Because you have the Spirit and the Spirit flows from you. The only things that are consecrated in the New Testament are people. We consecrate children by baptizing them and adults. That's it. We don't consecrate bread and wine in communion. The bread and wine consecrate us. 
That's why we're different from these churches that are always ritually consecrating things with oil and water and incense and sprinkling this stuff around. They are behaving as if the Spirit hadn't come. And that's an implication here of what Paul says. And a lot of what Paul develops later on in his opposition to the Jews and the Judaizers is exactly along these lines. Those who live under the works of the law are those who are going around trying to save the world through rituals. And Paul says, the world has been saved by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go on with this. I, I realize that went a little bit past some of you, but I wanted to make the point because I know some of you are interested in this matter and it is implied here. This word serve. We serve in the Spirit, not in these rituals. And that will become an issue in Paul here in Romans and Galatians and other places. Now, let's continue with the main thrust of this. Paul says, I've been praying for you and I want to come to see you. And in verse 11 and 12, he says, I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established and also that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, this is the doctrine of one anothering. And the epistles, Paul and the others are constantly talking about how we're supposed to one another one another. I know you remember this. And the reason that we one another one another is that the Holy Spirit flows from me to you and the Holy Spirit flows from you to me. And Jesus says this in John 7.38. John 7.38, Jesus says, Listen, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, though the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus doesn't say, if you believe in me, I will send the Spirit to you. That's implied. What he says is, out of your innermost being flow rivers of living water. Now, if you go back to Leviticus 15, you'll find that what flows from our innermost parts are defiling issues. Y'all ever had a conference on issues? A friend of mine said, you know, we ought to have a conference on issues. I said, no, I don't think so. I've been in enough trouble over the years for trying to deal with those parts of the Bible. But sometime when you know that nobody's going to find out about it, sneak off and read Leviticus 15. And you'll find that if you have issues from the flesh, which means your privates, if it's blood or seed or anything else, it's defiling. And if you touch somebody and you're having an issue, you defile them. If you sit on a couch and somebody else sits on the couch after you, they're defiled. This defilement of what's coming out of your innermost parts is spreading to all kinds of people. Yuck! Okay? I mean, you're supposed to say, Ugh, because that's what it's talking about. Well, Jesus says, once the Spirit comes, all that's cleaned up. And what comes out of you is the Holy Spirit. You see, now we say the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's true. But you and I are images of God. And the Spirit proceeds from us too. The Spirit proceeds from me to you. That's, I hope, what's happening tonight. And the Spirit proceeds from you to me. When you have something to say to me, when you remind me of something, when you just say hello, when I'm upset and crying and you just put your arm around me, the Spirit flows from you to me. And that's how we one another one another. And that's what life in the Spirit is. And that's why Paul wants to go and be with them. So that the Spirit can flow from them to him and the Spirit can flow from him to them. And they can mutually one another one another. And the effect of that, he says, remarkable here in verse 13, 
I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have been planned to come to you and I've been hindered so far that I might obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, what do you think of when he says, I want to obtain some fruit among you? You're a Jew. You grew up in a synagogue. You study the Bible four hours every Saturday morning. You practically know the Old Testament by heart. And Paul says, I want to grow some fruit among you. What do you think of? Pomegranates. Good tribe and no cigar. Yes, ma'am? Pardon? Children of God. No, no, I want to think about fruits. Not olives. Grapes? No! The Garden of Eden! The church is the new Garden of Eden, full of trees with fruits in it. And that's what Paul says. See, that's what you're supposed to click into your mind as soon as he says, I want fruit among you because you're the Garden of Eden. You're the sanctuary. You're the holy ground because you're saints. And finally, he says in verses 14 and 15, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and foolish, and I want to preach the gospel to those of you who are in Rome. Greeks and barbarians. Well, in the Restoration Covenant, which is set up after the exile, God appoints certain empires to be His special agents to protect the Jews. And there are four of these empires that are set up to protect His people. The first one is Babylon. The second one is Persia. The third is the Hellenistic Greek Empire. And the fourth is Rome. And this is all laid out in Daniel that the kingdom of God at this phase in history has two parts. The empire part and the Jews. The Jews are the special priestly people and the empire has been appointed by God to be a beast, to bear its fangs against the world like beware of the dog. You know, you have your Doberman there. Okay, the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans are the Dobermans who are going to protect your house. They're going to protect the Jews. And every time they go bad... God raises up another Doberman. So when the Babylonians went bad, he brought in the Persians. When the Persians stopped protecting the Jews, then he brought in the Greeks. And when the Greeks stopped protecting the Jews, he brought in the Romans. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that the Romans are always protecting the church. Pilate didn't want to put Jesus to death. He had to be talked into it. Festus didn't want to send Paul to Rome. You look in the book of Acts, you'll find that every time the Jews try to get the church in trouble, the Romans step in and protect them. When the Jews were trying to kill Paul, the Romans moved in and stopped it and protected Paul. So the Romans are the good guys until they fall in the days of Nero, which hasn't happened yet, and become a bad beast. And that's described in the book of Revelation, which is what I really wanted to teach on this week, but I was refused. And I was told, if you don't like that, you talk to Pastor Turi because I want to talk about Revelation. And he said you talk about Romans. So get on to him about it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.